So there are obviously other things attached to achievement and children being successful and happy. It's not just the food, but food is the foundation because without the right food, the framework doesn't exist. You know, at a cellular level, let's say at a neuronal level, the, the neurons aren't capable of developing the connections that they need to connect um, with other neurons to be able to allow the child to learn and grow and develop optimally. And that's what we want. We want the foundation to be there. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there, welcome back to Wisdom for Wellbeing. Quick question before we dive into the episode. Are you getting regular emails from me? I send, you know, every couple of weeks an email that offers tips, tricks, strategies, often related to this podcast to the yoga nerds on my mailing list, and I would love you to be one of them. It also means that the next month I can flag with you when I have a live workshop that you can join live in the sense of live online virtual given given the times that we're existing within so if you would like to grab a little goodie when you do join the yoga nerds just head to drcaitlin.com or wisdomforwellbeingpodcast.com and just scroll to the bottom of the page where you can sign up to the yoga nerds list and you'll do that by way of receiving a free guidebook which will offer an opportunity for you to reflect on your values, as well as give you a little bit of audio to go with your workbook, a values meditation hosted by yours truly. Anyways, have a look. Let me know what you think. I would love to be able to keep in touch with you. Hi there. Welcome back to Wisdom for Wellbeing. Now we have definitely chatted about the importance of nutrition and getting nutrients into your system for your physical and emotional health as well as your cognitive capacity and we are following on from that train of thought today when we talk about the little people in our lives how can you support your kids the small people you are around to eat well when they have this reputation of saying and oh no i do not like vegetables the challenges, right? Luckily, we are going to be talking to Dr. Delia McCabe around how we support our children to eat delicious and nutritious food. Dr. Delia McCabe has been a guest on Wisdom for Wellbeing before, so if you haven't listened to it, scroll back and you'll get some adult tips and tricks on how we really give our body the good stuff. But today we are talking children. So Delia actually shifted her research focus from clinical psychology to nutritional neuroscience upon discovering nutrition's critical role in mental well-being. Her research into female stress has been published in a number of peer-reviewed journals, and she's a regular expert in the media. She also has two books. One of them is a cookbook and a fantastic idea when you're looking to pull more strategies about how you get yummy, delicious goods onto your little one's plate. Using her background in psychology combined with evidence-based nutritional neuroscience and neurological strategies, Delia supports behavior changes and stress resilience. 
So if you want to optimize your brain health, she has a number of online courses, workshops, and tailored events that she does offer nationally and internationally. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to Dr. Delia McCabe. And yes, chocolate will come up in this conversation. So stay tuned. Chocolate and tacos, here we go. Welcome back to Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. I am delighted to be here with you again today. And this um, this is a special conversation because this is actually a conversation that takes place following our last interview because, you know, so many parents, um, people who are involved with little people in their lives are interested in how we support them to maintain emotional, physical well-being by the foods that are on their plates and in their tummies. So thank you for coming back on to have this conversation it's an absolute pleasure i really love this conversation because it's an important one and it's one that i really dived into a lot when my kids were young so thank you for the opportunity oh and and you know having um a young family myself i am so excited personally to learn from your wisdom and lots of listeners have sent in their questions so listeners if you might have missed out on um, the opportunity or maybe you're listening to these episodes a little bit later no no worries because i know that these questions are quite common and delia you have also offered that you know where there's an opportunity you can share some of the common concerns that come up with parents parents as well. So listeners, you are in for a treat. Um, and I guess, you know, I, that was a bit of a pun, but, um, but Dila, <laughs> would you mind just, would you mind just sharing for listeners who maybe haven't had the chance to listen to your first interview yet, a little bit about who you are and the amazing work that you are doing as part of Lighter, Brighter You. Thank you, Caitlin. Yes, I'll do that with pleasure. I was going to be a talking therapist, you know, a clinical psychologist like you are, when I had the misfortune or fortune to actually work with children who were really underachieving at school and uh, their parents were beside themselves, their teachers were beside themselves. You've always heard these stories about kids that are really smart but don't do well at school. And I had these children in, in this group that I was working with. I was looking at the psychological variables that underpin their underachievement. And I had a control group that were doing really well at school and um, didn't need any intervention. So these were my two groups, my experimental and my control group. And I had a little bit of extra space on one of the questionnaires that I developed for them. And I said to them, what's your favorite food? And it was really just a space filler. It was not something that I thought was going to give me any insights. But as you and I have spoken about this before, I was suddenly faced with this huge epiphany because every single one of the children in the control group didn't love junk food but every single one of the children in the experimental group that's the group that were doing poorly but were capable of doing well loved junk food and it was this huge huge you know dichotomous clear distinction so I thought goodness me this is really interesting and as fate would have it I was pregnant with my first child at the time and I thought look I'll take a little bit of a break I've got my master's and so on um, I'll investigate this you know what does it actually mean and so I then discovered that there was this field called nutritional neuroscience uh, this is 25 years ago, so I'm dating myself. But it's interesting because that field was very in, it's in, in its infancy at that point in time. And today we've got lots of robust evidence, weighty evidence that supports the fact that what we eat impacts brain function directly. So I then started finding out all of these things. Um, you know, it was 
pre-Google days. I was traipsing off to the library and getting journal articles with one sentence here and a small paragraph there. And I then started implementing those um, things that I was discovering into our family and the way we ate. And slowly but surely, I had discovered that there was a way to feed your children so that they could optimize their intellectual potential and they could actually function well and be physically healthy and be happy and have stable moods and actually like good food. So it was really a very fortuitous discovery that really served me and my family um, in a big, long-reaching way. So that's basically my background, Caitlin. Oh, and that's such such like a passion, isn't it? You know, the fact that you had this discovery that really unfolded unbeknownst to you, you weren't looking for it, this association with performance, academic performance, and, you know, love of and presumably a lot of digestion of different different foods, whether it was the health foods or the junk foods, and that you actually saw, you know, transformation in your family by starting to apply some of this nutritional neuroscience by starting to really link what was going on in the plates to what was going on in performance and behavior. Absolutely. And I think it's very empowering to discover information and then to start applying it and then to start seeing, wow, these are the benefits. So there are obviously other things attached to achievement and children being successful and happy. It's not just the food, but food is the foundation because without the right food, the framework doesn't exist. You know, at a cellular level, let's say at a neuronal level, the, the neurons aren't capable of developing the connections that they need to connect um, with other neurons to be able to allow the child to learn and grow and develop optimally and that's what we want we want the foundation to be there so the food is is very much part of a um, an approach that says well let's get first things first let's get you know down to down to first principles so I was very fortunate to have discovered that then and like that you said first principles because this is actually something that's come up in a few different areas this idea that you know we need to start with the basics the building blocks and everything else can come from there you know um so with, with that what do we feed kids like in terms of kind of starting the conversation today what are the things that are really important to keep in mind knowing there's a wealth of information what would be sort of the spark notes for those of us who might be less familiar with this I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that children kind of direct us with what they like to eat, you know? So when they're young and you're starting out after breastfeeding and you're giving them different tastes of different foods, there's some research to suggest that children take 10 different uh, or 10 introductions to the same food before they'll actually try that food. Now, this is of course related to temperament as well because some children will just happily put something in their mouths and, and taste it and others will go, oh no, I don't like the look of that. So, you know, that's, that's, that's something to keep in mind. And the other thing to keep in mind is that when children are young, very much um, what comes into play is the texture of the food. So they know or nature has, has imbued us with the instinctual understanding that if something is very squishy, it could be off. So, for example, some children, once they taste a tomato, they'll go, ah, they can't stand a raw tomato because it's got that squishy kind of, you know, not, not crisp taste or, or texture. So texture and flavor are very much intermingled in the young child's cognitive repertoire, can I put it that way, for what they want to try and what they don't want to. So sometimes it's easier for young children, um, obviously, when they get to the age when they can chew, is to have crisp and and um, things that can be bitten clearly that don't have that squishy, mushy um, 
kind of texture because that affects children. And also there's an age thing related to that. Parents may notice that children that don't like squishy foods are also children that get very bothered by labels on their clothes and labels in their shoes or on their socks. These are children that are very sensitive from a sensory perspective and they grow out of this. But parents just need to be aware of that fact that in the beginning, this could be one of the reasons that children are rejecting certain foods. Um, so that's just an important point to keep in mind. The other thing that I've noticed, which is very interesting, and I haven't done any research into this, but I've noticed that when parents stop breastfeeding and then they start, you know, mothers, and then they start feeding children um, different kinds of food, they're very fussy about the food at that point in time. So they look for organic and they don't want any additives or any sugars. They're very fussy. But then something happens over the next couple of years and they get to the point where it all seems to be too hard. And I understand that because I've seen mothers go from making all the organic homemade um, veggie purees to basically just telling the kids, you know, we all can eat whatever you want to. And I know why that happens because women are tired. Women carry huge loads, you know, in taking care of children and the home and working outside the home or inside the home on things outside the home. So these are all different things. And this is the time issue. And so that becomes a challenge. So I think there are a few issues that we could unpack about that if we have, if we have time later, but those are important things to keep in mind because brain development and texture and taste are very much intermingled. That's a really interesting point around it being, you know, evolutionary in a sense, you know, that this texture thing might have evolved as a way of keeping us safe. But at some point, I guess there's this learning that this is a safe food, this is a good food. And, and is that simply because it's offered, you know, 10 plus times? Or is it also, I imagine that we see parents or other people kind of modeling behavior too? 100%. I always tell people that children see much better than they hear. So if they see parents eating food that they are a little bit hesitant about, then they naturally feel like, well, it's actually safe because those are the mirror neurons in the brain picking up, you know, that children follow and say, okay, that's safe. So I'll do that. And it looks good. But yes, it could be 10, 11, 12 times that the child's exposed to that food. So it's important for parents not to get irritable and say, oh, well, and not, not present that food again. Um, I mean, even with broccoli, you know, when you, when you steam broccoli and you don't steam it for too long, it can still be a little bit crisp and bright green. But some children may prefer broccoli when it's completely raw, where they can gnaw on it and taste it. I've seen some children take raw broccoli, put it into a dip, um, a nice, good, oily, healthy dip, and then actually suck the dip off the broccoli. And so they're getting used to that funny kind of, you know, woody, <laughs> grassy kind of texture in their mouth while they're doing that. And every now and again, they'll bite a piece off. So it's just a matter of being patient while you allow your child to try all these different things. And if they put them aside, don't take it personally. It's just the process. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned like the good oily dip as well, because maybe this is an important topic too, is that it's not just having like all these raw vegetables that you're sort of putting in front of kids. You kind of almost mentioned this, this sauce, like that these vegetables could be a bit of a funneling device in the beginning as one gets used to them or socialized to them. Absolutely. I think for me, when I realized that um, flavor molecules disperse, disperse a lot more efficiently in fat versus water, I then realized that I could use that as a way to get children to, to play with their food because children love activity sets, don't they? So they can dip carrot sticks and dip things into all these sauces and then see what they prefer. And then you as a parent can see what is suitable, um, you know, what the children enjoy and then make more of that and then try different ones. Um, because then they get just more of the flavor. And of course, fats and oils are extremely important for optimal brain development. So that leads us into a discussion which we had last time 
you know, when, when, we, when we chatted. And that's really important. So you can really get a few things across the line with your kids here. You can get them to play with their food, which no one's going to object to, <laughs> except you the person that has to clean up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you get them to try different textures by using, as you said, the, the sauce is like a funneling device. You get them to have a, a flavor experience because of the fats and oils in the, in the sauce. And then you get them to just learn that they can try different things because it's fine to try different things. If we become very strict and pedantic about the kind of food that they're eating, then that also, you know, imbues the eating experience with a whole lot of emotion that we don't want to do. That's an interesting point that it needs to be something that is positive, enjoyable, that it's not forced or constrained, that that emotional element can, can certainly impact because I suppose kids have very little control in things in life, don't they? So if they say no to a certain, a certain food or something, that is something that they have some power over. And some of that might be directed by taste buds experiences, but some of that might actually be the emotional energy surrounding it, perhaps. I couldn't agree more. Because what happens is that traditionally during the terrible twos um, and, you know, going into the, the third year, children learn that they can say no. And it's a perfect place to do that at the dinner table when they realize that if they say no, mom or dad gets upset. So then it's just a case of just saying, well, you know, you don't want to have that. You would like this instead. There's a trick here, though, because let me just say before I talk about the trick, the other thing is when you tell your child if they don't eat the broccoli, they can't have dessert. They learn that the broccoli is bad and the you know, they've got to get through the bad thing first before they get to the dessert, which is also not, not what you want to do. Um, but as far as the trick goes in terms of offering something else for the child, it's important to keep in mind that a child that isn't hungry will be a lot more fussy than a child that is hungry. Because children are naturally primed to eat when they're hungry. So if your child isn't hungry, it may be because they're having too many snacks between meals, or it could actually be a zinc deficiency. Now, this is something that a lot of parents aren't aware of because zinc is very, very important for the 10,000 taste buds that we have to function optimally. And when taste buds aren't functioning optimally, the child will naturally gravitate to very highly flavored and very sweet foods because that's the only thing that gives them a feeling of, of pleasure, which will then release dopamine. If the food is kind of like bland and boring, they won't get that, that feeling of pleasure because they don't have enough zinc to allow their taste buds to function optimally. So I always suggest to parents, if they're having a child with really, really fussy, very, very picky, isn't hungry, um, maybe you know, kind of um, on, the, on the slim side, which isn't a problem, but if the child isn't eating optimally, then that is a challenge. Always have their zinc status checked because there's a lot of research to support the fact that zinc is important for um, appetite regulation, a feeling of satiation, the desire to eat, and even body image. So that's something to keep in mind. That's incredible. Is zinc something that would be supplemented or is that something we get from certain foods? How does that work? If the child is severely deficient, then they would need to be um, supplemented with zinc. And there's some formulas that you get, which is just on a teaspoon and the child can just have half a teaspoon to get that zinc. Zinc is found a lot in animal products. So this is specifically relevant for, for children that are being brought up maybe as vegans or vegetarians, which can be a challenge if zinc, iron and B12 aren't being supplemented as well. I, so I am a vegan, my daughter, my family's vegan. So that's an interesting point too. We, you know, we're aware of the B12, but zinc iron, just being mindful of keeping tabs on those, if that's not something that, you know, maybe listeners have in their diet too. Absolutely. And also for children, they can't eat, even if you are eating meat, they can't eat meat 
unless it's chopped up very finely and get the benefit of it, um, which maybe a, a supplement may be able to help with. So that's just, these are just things to keep on our radar as parents because we want optimal brain and body development for our children. And now we know so much that we can actually use and apply. That's fantastic. And so there's science behind this. There's, you know, monitoring of different things that might be influencing taste, you know, association with textures. Parents are busy. (laughs) Where do they start? How do they get healthy, creative meals on the table when they are, you know, and and speaking from, you know, your own experience, my experience, when we are so time, time poor, or, you know, have different investments of time and various, various things, where do we start? I think a really important place to start is to make sure that you do some food prep. And for me, I do that on a Sunday, I go off to the organic market, I come back home, I sort my fridge out so that I can easily open the fridge and make a meal in 30 minutes. So it's an investment of probably about two and a half hours but it pays off handsomely throughout the week because then I just pull whatever I need out of the fridge. As children get older, this is also really helpful because when the child opens the fridge, um, I had a fridge, I had a shelf in my fridge, which was basically the kid's shelf. So whatever was on that shelf, they could take out and, and munch and snack on when their friends came and so on. And I always made sure that I had really nice and healthy little treats. So when they became teenagers, they often would want something sweet and yummy or something salty. And I would always make sure that I had fresh hummus there, you know, with organic corn crackers, or I had some little chocolate treats, which the girls seem to gravitate towards. So making sure that you've got those things there for kids as they get older. But if they're still young, making sure you do meal prep. The other thing which I found really useful when my kids were young, I used to have two little yellow chairs that I had in the kitchen and they would pull those little yellow chairs to wherever I was at the counter and I'd give them a knife on the chopping board, obviously a blunt knife and so on when they got older. And then they would chop or they would wash or, or trim the heads of the, the beans, whatever it was we did. They got involved in the experience because the minute a child is involved in an experience, they're much more open to trying the food. So then they would maybe try a raw bean, you know, or try the lettuce. And in this way, they become accustomed to the different foods that you're busy preparing. And it's always accessible to them. They used to be next to me on the kitchen counter, one on either side, and they'd be fiddling and playing and doing whatever. And that's a way to encourage children to be involved. I know parents will say, oh my goodness, that means it's more wash up and more, more prep, you know, in terms of making sure that you've got stuff for kids. But if the aim of, of, of your trying to feed your children well is really important if that's one of the values that you have then it definitely makes sense to just invest a little bit of time and effort into helping your children do that and when you've prepped the food you just take those containers out of the fridge and they're there and you tell the children okay what do you want to mix together in the salad or how are we going to do this and so it just makes it easier they've got much more control over the end product than if you just plonk the food down and say that's the meal you know, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned going to the markets and, and the meal prep. And after our last conversation, I was so inspired with artichokes. I think I've commented on this a few times now, but I was like, wow, this is like a superfood I had no idea about. But we actually saw some artichokes at the markets and we bought them. And I, I've never cooked artichokes from you know, an artichoke from scratch before. And we, we did it. I did it with my daughter. She had a little, she has a stool that she uses in the kitchen. So similar idea. And I was amazed because when we got the artichokes out, like they were okay, they weren't flavored or anything. And I think because she'd been so involved in the process and like cutting off the roof of the artichoke 
house home i don't know what it's called to to make it in the boiling all of the prep she she loved or professed to love and eat the artichokes and i think that was a direct result of that involvement absolutely because there she saw she was part of the whole experience it was she'd invested her time and her effort and her emotion into this weird thing that her mother was doing (laughs) um so i mean that's fantastic i'm so pleased to hear that uh, something just to keep in mind, you don't always have to cook them from scratch. You actually get great artichoke hearts in brine. Great. At Woolies. <laughs> so I use those ones and I just squeeze the moisture out and I throw them into hummus because then I have artichoke hummus. And it's a fantastic way to get artichokes into your diet in a way that you wouldn't think about. It actually makes the hummus a whole lot creamier and just yummy. And I'm sure that your daughter would enjoy that. And maybe you could show her, you know, this is what that artichoke looked like when we made it. This is what it looks like here. And what do you think? The chances are not high that she's going to love it because it's kind of squishy, but when it's in the hummus, perfect. And this is one of the recipes, just so listeners know where to go for it, that is in um, your lighter, brighter, you cookbook as well. So you know, listeners, when you're kind of going, oh, okay, like, how do I go about that? It sounds so simple, but what do I actually do? Step by step, it's all there. And, um, and that's a great tip. I'm going to be heading to Woolies. International listeners, it would be um, Safeway or wherever you go to the grocery shop to, to grab um, an easier avenue to artichokes, because I don't, I don't know that I would be doing them from scratch all the time. <laughs> Yeah, and then you do have to make sure that you've got a flavorful sauce because that's what most restaurants do. They serve artichokes, you know, that have been cooked from scratch and they serve them with a really flavorful aioli because that's when they taste good because otherwise they're pretty bland and woody and a bit boring. But um, they've got great health benefits as we've discussed. So there's a combining of foods as well. So it sounds like you're kind of highlighting that we can combine these foods, have kids involved in the process, you know, maybe get a recipe out, maybe in the case of a salad, let the kids choose what they put in, but that it actually becomes this family connecting activity. So if we're looking at at like a learning experience, a developmental activity, even if it takes a little bit more time to have our kids involved, that there's actually relationship building and connection that's happening here. 100% right, because food is something that bonds us. And when we eat together and we communicate while we're eating together, there's a lot of research to show that that's really good for us. It bonds us, you know, from a psychological perspective. Oxytocin is released, serotonin is released, dopamine is released when we enjoy the food. So there's all sorts of things happening, you know, at a level below just preparing and eating the food, which is great to know. I think also it makes children curious. So a child may see a photograph in a magazine or see something on Instagram and they may say, oh, that looks great. And I encourage parents to keep on encouraging their children to do that because that means that the child is curious and interested. And then you can just tweak the recipe slightly to make it a little bit healthier and a little easier for them to help you with. But then you've always got ideas because I know many women walk into the kitchen and they go, oh my goodness, what am I going to make for a meal? If you've got your children out there busy scurrying around looking at foods they like when they come to help in the kitchen, or you can say, hey, has anyone seen something that you like the idea of? Um, And this is also where you can introduce different themes for maybe during the holidays or during a weekend. You can say, okay, are we going to eat Spanish food this weekend or Italian food or Greek food or Indian food? And then the children can say, okay, this is what those foods, that's what these cultures have. And then you can make that food and it just gives them a different flavor. They have a different, maybe some spices. They have a different experience of some herbs different carbohydrates, maybe some different protein, maybe different legumes. And all of that inspires them to be curious and to, you know, to just stretch their 
their, their flavor profile a little bit. The themes is brilliant, isn't it really? Because when you mentioned like trying to come up with ideas that that can be hard, that you have your kids kind of collating and collecting them um, for you is one way, but then having these themes kind of provides a bit of a spark, something different in terms of just going back to the kitchen and doing the same thing again and again. This provides new opportunities for, I imagine, everyone to be a bit more creative. It does. Uh, One of the things that we did, we started making tortillas from scratch. So we found a tortilla press and my son was in charge of actually pressing them, which was a lovely boy activity. And then we had them ready and then we cooked them. And then we've got a, I've got a recipe that I made for years and years. And all the children in the neighborhood used to know about this recipe. And it's a recipe called coconut beans, where we used coconut cream in a bean sauce. And it's really the simplest dish to make. And it's really delicious. And all the kids would know about this. They'd come to the house, they'd smell it. They'd sit down, (laughs) I'd give them the corn chips and they'd eat away. And then when we started making the tortillas, we then had to adjust the corn, um, the coconut beans a little bit to make them a little bit drier. And then we can put them into the, the, you know, the homemade tortillas with guacamole. And it just made a whole event out of the meal that everyone could participate in. So the themed um, meals are really lots of fun and you can get as involved or as little involved as you want in terms of making them from scratch because you can also get great tortillas from a good health store. You take them and you can use them. And, and I've done that now. I don't have my son around anymore to make the tortillas. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, this is a po- an important point, isn't it? So listeners who are like, well, that seems like a lot. It's saying, well, we'll do what you can, you know, figure out when you have the time, when you have the space, you know, whether it's a weekend or a special night where you have bonding time with your kids, you can decide, you know, how, how raw, you know, you go where you start from scratch on this and build up. What do we do about lunch boxes? You know, I don't, I don't have kids who are in school, but this is a question that was, you know, really highlighted because some parents have to make not just, you know, dinner on the table, but actually plan for food the next day. How do you go about that? Look, this is a challenging issue, especially with the fact that so many things are um, off, off limits at school. And when I say so many things, I'm talking about possibly nuts and seeds, and they are powerhouses of energy. And if you could allow your children to take that, that would be great. But coconut butter is another option because coconut butter, coconut isn't actually a nut, it's actually a fruit. So it doesn't have the same risks attached to to nuts and and to peanuts. So that is one thing just to to keep on, on our radar. And coconut butter is absolutely delicious in any case. So that's one thing. The other thing is, as children get older, you can get them involved in making their own lunch boxes. And that's where meal prep comes in again. So if they open the fridge and they see all of these things that are available, my son on many, many days would take hummus and a packet of corn chips and he would take some fruit and he'd take his water and that's what he would have for his lunch. And then I knew when he came home, he could always have some other food. My daughter would take leftover salad, some chopped up carrot sticks maybe half an avocado. She would choose her own food when she got older. When children are younger, I suggest that what parents do is have kind of like a mix and match. So just give them a few. uh, I think today, just one step back, today we've got these lovely lunch boxes that have got all these different compartments. And when they first came out, I was so excited about that because children love to pick and choose between all these different things. So you can have a few berries in one and then you can have maybe some um, rice crackers or rice cakes that you've broken up into another so that they can dip that into some kind of a sauce. And then you can have slivers of, of maybe um, apple 
that you've just drizzled with a little bit of orange juice so that they don't go dark and half a banana in another section. I think giving them a variety of all these different things makes it a lot easier because then they can choose between them. And then you get to know what they like and what they don't like either. And sometimes they'll swap with children at school because children go, oh, what's that bright red thing in there, you know? And then you go, oh, that's a, that's a you, you've made maybe a um, bounce, bounce ball kind of a treat and you've put a little bit of beetroot powder into it. So it's red. And they go, oh, that looks interesting. So maybe they want to swap with that. So it just becomes a matter of being a little bit creative and just extending yourself, but allowing your kids to help with that process. That's perfect for different age groups, isn't it? You know, that there's different responsibilities that come with it. 100%. And I think what happened to us as well is when there was leftovers, our children would often take the leftovers to school. They would take that in a container with a fork and off they'd go. And I think because they had been entrained, some people would say indoctrinated, but they just knew that that was the best food for them. And generally they were hungry. So, cause they hadn't been, they'd had a good breakfast, but by the time lunch came, they were hungry. So they then, you know, got stuck into their food. A lot of parents say, you know, there's competition at the school. Their peers eat, are eating brightly colored, you know, crisps and, and lollies and so on. Of course that's going to happen. And this, you know, this brings me to the next point. If we can as much as possible find a way to find the healthiest of the processed foods and give our children that as an option. I've seen at some health stores, they do have some lollies that are made with vegetable coloring, for example, and you know, not, not with refined cane sugar. Um, so those are options that you can use for your child, but you also have to make peace with the fact that sometimes they're just going to eat rubbish and you just have to make peace with that. It's not as if that's their their whole diet. So parents shouldn't feel guilty and, you know, get terribly upset about that. They will eat rubbish. The aim of the exercise though is to make sure they're never very hungry when they're going to be presented with rubbish. So for example, birthday parties. Oh my goodness. I gave my children their favorite food before they went to a birthday party because then they sat down, they had that meal. And when they got to the birthday party, they would play. And I would have parents saying to me, why are your children the only children that are playing? They weren't hanging around the, you know, the table with all the food that was going to drive them crazy later on. They were the children playing. So I suggest that parents just get a little sneaky from that perspective. Just give your kids their favorite meal. And when they get to the party, they'll actually be enjoying the party a whole lot more than the other children who are trying to fill themselves with all this non-food. Well, this is a tip almost for us, isn't it too, right? Like if we're heading out somewhere where we know there's not going to be great food for us to eat, why not eat something at home, spoil our appetite a little and then head out. And, um, and then we won't be in that situation where we, you know, have our stomach cramping or we're starving or whatever it is afterwards that there's, um, there's ways around it that we're almost training our kids of as well, that this is actually a social opportunity. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, just hovering around the food table if that's, if that's not necessary and, and not helpful. Yeah, look, I've done that for years. If I know that I'm going to go somewhere where my food options are already limited, I make myself um, a powdered drink, with, which is a green barley drink with some um, beetroot powder as well. I just stir it in and I drink it up. And when I get there, I know that I'm not going to make a decision based on my blood glucose dipping. I'll make a decision on what looks good and what looks tasty and, and healthy, but I'm not driven to make that decision because, you know, the brain makes very poor decisions when it's hungry. So we can help it out and we can teach our kids to do the same. 
And what, what do we do when, you know, we talked about birthday parties, kids heading out, kind of making sure that they're full. Is that the same technique with, for instance, grandparents or extended family members or, you know, those, um, those people who, who provide the special treats? And I mean, I love tapping ice cream at my grandparents growing up, so I'm kind of, I'm one of them. But what do we as parents do to balance this, to manage this? Well, there are two things to do. The first thing to do is to have a little box you only have toys and little books and little treats and some of them new to give to your child when they're going to go to a place like that because then they get involved with that new toy or whatever it is and they don't get sucked into the food. And, of course, you have to make sure that they aren't hungry when they do that. So that, that's the one way of doing that because when children are really involved in something and they're not hungry, they won't gravitate to that kind of food and so if you do that on an ongoing basis the child will learn oh when we go to granny and grandpa we have some new thing to play with which can be useful the other useful thing to do is to take something with you that you know the other children and adults will love so i always used to take something that i made called coconut fudge and it's a raw fudge that you make with coconut and dates and it's delicious and every adult and every child that's ever tasted it loves it so i would always take some of that with me and I'd make a separate one for the adults with a little bit of dark chocolate on it to make them feel like they were getting a special treat. But you can do that for the kids as well. So that's another way for the kids to not feel like they left out because they brought this. And if they helped you make it and you know that other children are going to love it, then they invested in other people trying the things that they've made. So those are two tricks to just try and take the edge of them eating the other junky food. But then once again, if they have some of it, they're not going to be filling up on it. So there's no guilt attached and no, no emotion atta attached to it. Just let them have some of it. It's an occasional thing. But those two tricks work pretty well. But that's beautiful. And um, it's interesting because, you know, when you were mentioning the coconut um, cream burritos and things earlier, tacos, um, you know, I noticed that there's this pattern, isn't there, that you're offering something that's really delicious to other people. So other people are actually getting curious about what you're eating and your kids are involved in this process. So there's a steam link to it. It's a really beautiful gift. Well, it was quite funny because what happened is that the children in the neighborhood would gravitate to our house because I was always busy doing something, melting chocolate, trying this, doing that. And they gravitated there. And so they came with, with, with my children to the house. And then they ended up telling their parents. So there were at least three mothers in the neighborhood that started making coconut beans as well because their children loved them so much. So <laughs> it kind of like became, it's coconut beans at X's house today. And then all the children would go there. So it became kind of like a tradition that that was the one of the most favorite meals that the children would, would enjoy. And one of the mothers said to me, my child will eat broccoli in your house, but not in mine. What are you doing? And then I gave her some tips. So it does kind of like become a community event when your children are involved with other children and the doors are always open in your home to come and try new foods. For sure. And I also like that you didn't demonize the unhealthy food either, you know, that this is something that happens, that it's not, you know, that a parent is bad or a kid is bad, that they're going to try it. But just if that isn't the food that people are eating all of the time, then as we sort of talked to probably in the last episode as well, like our gut bacteria is going to stay healthy. We're going to be putting the good things into our system for our cognitive function, for our energy. And it doesn't add that emotional charge because I imagine if a food gets really, um, 
I don't know whether demonized is necessarily the right word, but where a parent gets fixated on no, 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 or it gets kind of put in this sort of halo category that might become more appealing to a child rather than something else that, um, that seemingly is maybe forced upon them as an alternative. Quite correct. I think that emotional charge needs to be removed from the food because food shouldn't be attached to our feelings. The minute food is attached to our feelings, we end up with a problem. So we need to be eating to satisfy our hunger and to give us fuel and energy to live our best lives. You know, it shouldn't be the other way around, eating so that we can feel better about ourselves. And that's, you know, when parents um, reward their child with food, if they've hurt themselves or they're crying and they're upset, the child learns that this is, you know, a connection between these two things, which shouldn't be there. So it's easy for the parent to separate the two when it's the focus is on hunger and health and, you know, the variety of the food instead of how do you feel there's a there's a big distinction that's lovely i love this idea of it being creative the themes the kids being involved finding foods when they're younger you know doing mix and matches and lunch boxes and when they're older getting them involved so they can make their own food and i i think how interesting that your son and daughter chose such different things to bring to school as well it's not that you were saying this is what you have to bring each of their little bodies personalities you know their situation called them to bring different things in their lunch boxes and that was okay <laughs> That was perfectly fine. And I made sure that they had enough of a variety when they opened the pantry door, because this is something else that parents say to me, what do I do about everything that's in the pantry that I know that isn't healthy? And I'll just give an example of what not to do. So I gave a talk one day at a school, it actually was my children's school. The, the principal had found out about my research and said, please go, come and give a talk to the parents. So I went along. I was very happy to do that. And one of the mothers became so excited, Caitlin, that she went home and she threw everything out of the pantry. So when her children came back from school, they saw all their favorite treats lying on the floor at the garbage bin. And they were like, what is going on here? And they were beside themselves. And then, of course, when the husband came home, he got involved in this huge, big argument. And it wasn't a good situation. So she then phoned me and said, what have I done? And I said, oh, my goodness. And so I learned a lesson there to give people some guidance. So nobody should go and do that who's listening to this podcast. <laughs> Just take one item, look at it, and go and find a healthier, healthier alternative. So look at what the ingredients list are. Say, okay, I don't want to have those things in there. Remember, the longer the ingredient list, the more processed the food is. The higher up in the list sugar and additives are, the more concentrated they are. So those are just the two rules to keep in mind. Go and find a healthier replacement. So when that runs out and the kids go, oh, what happened to that? So, oh, I found this. I don't know if it's nice. Let's try it. Don't make a big deal out of it. But keep on doing that over, over a period of time. Just be consistent and be patient. And over a six-month period, a person's pantry can look completely different. You don't have those things there anymore. Now you have different things. And now when the children go to the shop with you, they'll go, oh, what about this, mom? And what about that? Now they're involved in this process. It's not you making the decision simply based on their taste buds. This is what's available. I think parents have this idea that they need, you know, they need to always cater to exactly what the child wants. And I think the culture that we've grown up into wants to make children happy. But we have to keep in mind that we are the adults and we actually know better for our child. You know, we wouldn't let our child wander around on a six-lane highway in the same way, you know, you're building your child's best body and brain right now. So I think we need to take that responsibility and run with it in a positive way, 
without making the child feel deprived and just be smart. You know, we, we adults, we know how to do these things. Just that slow replacement is a very simple way to get the child just eating different foods that are less additive filled and definitely nourish them at a deeper level. That's beautiful. So the meal prep, healthier alternatives, getting lunch boxes, you know, um, I guess act, the, getting the kids actively involved in the lunch boxes as well as the meals. For parents who maybe don't feel like they've got this base level of knowledge about how they might modify recipes or, you know, make, um, make the swaps, you know, doing the ingredient reading and whatnot, where can they learn more from you? Because you've got a wealth of information on this, Delia. I think in my first book, I explained the science about how, how, why one should be feeding one's brain. So if you're interested in the science, then, you know, you can read that. But if you're interested in just taking the science into your kitchen, my second book, which is Feed Your Brain, the cookbook, takes all of that science and just applies it to recipes. And I made sure that the recipes weren't long and complicated. And the ones that are actually say, you know, in, in, in the, when I describe the recipe, that it'll take a little bit longer and maybe it's for entertaining. But most of the other recipes are really quick and simple to make. And you can just swap out things. So at the bottom of every recipe, I've got variations. If you don't have this, use this. And one of the ways to do this easily and to make sure that everyone gets to try it is don't put everything together in the meal. So keep the peas separate to maybe the quinoa pilaf that I've got. And maybe keep the mushrooms separate and chop up the tomatoes and put them separately so that the child can kind of like have a mix and match. And then we come back to the, you know, 10 times exposure. So those recipes of mine were all devised to be able to, for example, you don't have to add coriander to the meal. My son hates coriander. So I always had to put coriander separately. So parents can easily take the recipes and adapt them in that way and just chop and change and try different things. If I call for quinoa, and the kids maybe haven't tried quinoa, cook a little bit of quinoa and use it on a separate occasion, but replace the quinoa with rice and so on and so forth. We do want to make this as simple as possible. And I didn't have years to spend in the kitchen, you know, on a daily basis. Excuse that, that weird time analogy. But I think parents want things done really quickly. So that's the way I devised my recipes. Beautifully flexible. How empowering for those of us who also may be going, oh, I haven't been shopping yet. So, you know, what, what alternatives can we use here and what, what can we do to make sure everyone's involved and gets to put things together? Because I also imagine that adding the bits and pieces in has the kids involved, but like the lunch boxes where things are a little bit separate and they get to try bits and pieces as a young person, it's like having a picnic, isn't it? A bit of an adventure. It is. And then you can also see what they like and what they don't, because Maybe your children have never tried, for example, blackberries. So you find blackberries at the store and you go, oh, wow, this could be fun. And you put those in and then the child isn't sure, but then the child brings them home and you eat them and they go, oh, they're actually safe. Yeah. <laughs> and so we go. So, so I guess grabbing your books is one way of kind of getting an idea of the science behind this. So we understand why this imp is important. And I think that's probably a great um, foundation if, if, uh, listeners do have do have the space for that because then you can kind of explain a little bit to your kids which is hugely empowering and also really validates their knowledge as well and their capacity to learn about why these things matter as well as the recipe book where we can make flexible alternatives and 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 learn <laughs> to develop perhaps our own creativity you also have your website lighter brighter you and you're on facebook give us give us all the places Delia, where we can connect and where we can learn well, I've got my Instagram, which is growing. It's really, I don't have a huge following, but it's growing and I put good recipes on there and I put interesting bite-sized pieces of information so mothers can follow that and also for their own health. 
because my research has focused very much on female stress. So I understand that. So I try and keep that in mind with my posts. On my Facebook um, page, I also put a lot of interesting articles and I allude to my blog posts so that people can read more about the science about behind what I'm, what I'm doing. And on LinkedIn, I just do a bit, maybe more of a, from a business perspective, but always to give value that people can take information away and run with that. So those are three ways that people can find me. If they go to my website and they opt in, they'll also get a 72-hour diet, kind of like a meal plan. And they can try some of those recipes in, in that meal plan because those are the ones that we've used a lot and that are, that are really helpful and useful in our house. So that's just that's another way. And then, of course, I send a newsletter out to everyone that's opted in with more information. For example, with a link to pod, uh, podcasts that I do, like ours, and links to, to blog articles and so on. So if anybody wants to find me on social media, they can. Um, and it's at lighter, brighter you. <laughs> um, and I will, of course, listeners put links to all of this in the show notes. And Delia, I just have to say thank you so much for making the space today, because after our conversation last time, you know, we talked a little bit about how important, you know, this conversation is in terms of young people. Um, and then listeners have responded incredibly, been so interested. So I know that this is a really, really important conversation because it, it does, as you say, it, it makes such a difference in terms of our kids' potentials, futures, well-being, and, and the family culture that we're all that we're all creating and embedded within. So thank you very much for making this space to chat with me today and for sharing with wisdom for well-being listeners. Thank you, Caitlin. It was an absolute delight. Thank you. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that conversation and you are walking away with some strategies for how you can get the good stuff onto your little one's plate. I know I certainly am. So of course, head on over to lighterbrighteryou.life to connect with Delia. She's also got the wonderful books, Feed Your Brain and Feed Your Brain the Cookbook so that you can keep, you know, dishes, artichokes coming into play in the kitchen. You can, of course, head to the show notes at drcaitlin.com or wisdomforwellbeingpodcast.com where you can connect in with Delia's Lighter, Brighter You Facebook group. And we've got links to her socials there as well. And just a reminder, if you have not joined the Yoga Nerds yet, head to drcaitlin.com, scroll down towards the bottom and sign up to get your free guidebook to support you in living a values-aligned life, as well as then signing up for the Yoga Nerds mailing list so I can drop into your inbox once every couple weeks offering you some strategies and there I can flag with you when a live online training that's going to cultivate your break, yoga brain, pardon me, is offered in... Oh, like about three weeks time. So next month. All right. Wish you a wonderful week, health and wellness for you and yours. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.